Hey, welcome to The Scrum, GBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Peter, greetings. Hey there, Adam. Here on The Scrum, we tend to focus on local politics, not national. But this week, with the exit of Donald Trump and the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, it felt like we had to shift gears and talk about the state of the U.S. right now and moving forward. Joining us to do that is one of our favorite Scrum regulars, Yawu Miller, the senior editor of the Bay State Banner. Yawu, thank you for being here. Thank you. Let me start by asking you both a big and pretty personal question. I have found myself despairing about the future of the country for a while now. I'm worried about political violence becoming the norm. Ditto an embrace of minoritarian government. And I have real fears about my kids becoming adults here. After the past few weeks, the assault on the Capitol, the second impeachment of Donald Trump, and now the swearing in of Biden and Harris, are you two feeling pessimistic or optimistic? Way more optimistic. And it's just, I mean, like this, the spectacle of it, of, of uh, Biden on the front steps of the White House where a week earlier, you know, we had that uh, that fiasco and and um, yeah, just just, you know, having a president in there who's presidential for the first time in four years, um, the novelty of that hasn't worn off yet. The um, the inauguration definitely trumped um, the insurrection, but um, America's a mess and it's going to take a long time to fix it. And it was a mess before Donald Trump was elected. As a matter of fact, Trump's election is um, only the most recent indicator of how dysfunctional the United States has become. Um, I'm hopeful, um, but my, my hope is tempered, as I think will become clear throughout our conversation, lest anyone mistake my position. I don't think anyone's more glad than I am that Trump's gone, but I think um, not so much Biden, although Biden and the Democrats and the left um, are problematic in different ways. I was just reading an article before we started talking by Astad Herndon at the New York Times, who many of our listeners will be familiar with, former Globe reporter. He's gone and done great things. And I think he's like 29 years old or something insane like that. It was a really good piece focused on Charlottesville and how people in Charlottesville felt while they were watching the attack on the Capitol unfold. And the big takeaway for me from that piece was that as Biden and others, uh, including you know Democrats and Republicans, call for unity and make unity a top priority, that there's a real tension between unity on the one hand and accountability on the other, and that there are some people who think if there is not accountability, starting with the Capitol insurrection, but extending into a whole bunch of different areas, that you can't get to unity if you skip over the accountability part. Is it fair to see that as maybe the central challenge that 
Biden is going to face as he governs? No, I reject that dichotomy. I think it is a matter of political viability. Um, if a degree of accountability makes things more politically viable, great. By the way, I don't think you can dismiss what happened, but um, I think that's a false dichotomy. And I read the same article. I think it's all about political viability. You know, look, Trump's downfall, his downfall is attributable to two factors. The first may seem eccentric to some people, but I firmly believe that if Trump had done a better job of being chief of state, he would still be head of government. Um, but look at the margins. You know, Trump in 16, um, you know, 2016 got 46.1% of the vote, a minority. Uh, this time in 2020, he got 46.7% uh, of the vote. He's basically been flat. And he's been flat because he was never able to extend his base. Um, the Democrats, you know, won, again, rather narrowly in the Electoral College. Um, you know, one state going the other way would have, you know, switched things around. Do you say all that? I, I think I know where you're heading with this. Do you say all that to make the argument that uh, Biden has to be conciliatory as he takes over because otherwise it's just not going to work? No, I don't think he has to be conciliatory, which suggests a subordinate position. Um, he has to be smart. He has to take positions that will turn that margin of Republican voters that voted for him into regular Democratic voters. I mean, they'll still be registered as independents. I, I think it's a question of um, what I would say political common sense that may be obfuscated by the ideologies of the moment. But let me let Yahoo get a, a word in edgewise here. Yeah, I mean, I just think Trumpism really depends on, on divisiveness. The rhetoric, the notion that black people, immigrants, etc., are advancing at the expense of whites is a you know so it's it's what Trump sort of thrives on, and the antidote to that is more of a we're in we're all in the same boat together idea. So I think that that Biden certainly has to get that out there, to, you know, to the voters. Um, in Congress, it's going to be a lot more tricky. I mean, because he's you know a lot of the Republicans didn't want him seated, so how he plays that out, um, it's hard to tell. But I mean, I think his 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 rhetoric is on point. He's making, he made the right points in his speech. I would say, yes, um, uh, it, it was, frankly, I thought it was the best inaugural I've seen, um, not just because it was Biden, um, although we have to take into account there were no pauses for applause with anything, you know, just because of the COVID dictated circumstances. Because Bernie had his mittens on, you wouldn't be, hear, be able to hear him applaud anyway. <laughs> good, good point. Very good point. I think he struck the, you know, the right notes in the speech. 
But, well, I'll leave it off there. Let's see where this conversation goes. I, I'm, I'm fighting the urge to hijack it. That's why I'm... If there's something on your mind, I would say go ahead and say it. Well, let, let's, let's, let's take, and this may seem like an obscure point, but these obscure points could add up. There was a lot of talk, justifiable talk, about um, uh, Trump violating norms. Let's take something simple like the United States rejoining the Paris Climate Accords. By the way, something that I think was a very good move, and I think it was a bad move on um, Trump's part to remove himself. By the way, one reason I find it so easy to say that is because I don't think the Paris Climate Accord is really all that great a piece of policy. But like rejoining the World Health Organization, it's better to be in then out, and the United States should be on the inside. So, okay, I'm now in favor of us rejoining the, the Paris Climate Accord, but, that should, but, but let's get back to norms. That should be a treaty. It's not a treaty because it would never pass the Senate. Um, does that upset me? One side of my brain says, no, it doesn't. The other side of my brain says, you know, that is not the norm of constitutional government. Now, the reason I'm not all upset about it, and this seems like an academic point, is the, the federal government, the executive branch of the federal government is like a yo-yo. You know, Trump spent four years doing all this stuff, and now Biden in pretty much a day, undid a huge amount of it. And you know what? You know, if the Democrats don't hold on to the office in four years or in eight years, the same thing's going to happen again. We are emerging or have emerged as maybe one of the most unreliable international partners, the most unreliable, because we're a yo-yo. Let me ask you guys about whether the most basic institutions of American democracy are going to continue functioning after this cycle. We we got through it this time, but we almost didn't. I am wondering, for example, if uh, Joe Biden serves one term and Kamala Harris is elected president four years from now, how optimistic are you that uh, Republicans would actually accept her win as valid? Because if they don't, if what we saw this time around becomes a regular feature for one party or potentially for two, I think we're in real trouble. I think part of the equation this time around was Trump um, putting out disinformation or outright lies on social media. You know, if social media hasn't learned its lesson after four years of this and they're allowed to go on unchecked, then then we're in trouble. Um but I mean, I do think that 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 um, you know, four years from now, we we should be looking at a different playing field, where the sort of manipulation that Trump supporters were subjected to, um, I, I hope I would hope that that would not be a feature of of the next election or any coming election. Well, I I share that hope. I mean, what Trump, and we must say the Republican Party, by not correcting Trump. What Trump and the Republicans did 
is akin to what happened in Germany after the First World War. The bogus theory that Jews stabbed Germany in the back began 13 years before Hitler took power. I think that what Trump and the Republican Party, or most of the Republican Party did, um, is akin to that. Not akin to it the day before Hitler was elected, akin to it the 13 years before when, you know, uh, that vile untruth was hatched. And that's one reason um, I see the nation in real danger. I mean, the number of Republican voters who have questions about the viability, the legitimacy of this election is just astounding. Is there any way, do you two think, to deal with that? Going beyond the social media question, which is obviously huge and a topic for another conversation, is there anything else that can be done to, I guess, strengthen the most basic institutions that keep things working, uh, whichever party happens to win an election, and maybe to restore the faith of a big chunk of the electorate? Or are we just kind of stuck with this worrisome status quo? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking of, of, you know, I mean, what can be done to prevent it from happening again? Like in the, you know, for instance, we know that Trump uh, had something like 30,000 lies over four years because the New York Times is keeping track. Um, the news media shares some of the responsibility uh, by, um, I mean, I think at, at the beginning they were sort of saying Trump says X, Y, and Z, and it's sort of like treating him with the same degree of courtesy that you would treat somebody who, who is not lying intentionally. Um, Trump sort of understood that weakness in the news media so he could intentionally lie, intentionally deceive people, and he knew that that um, we in the news media would print what he said. Um, you know, I, I don't know that the news... I mean, I, th- I think by the end, the news media would, you know, was, was doing a better job of, of, uh, of saying Trump says X, Y, and Z, even though, like, we know that's false. You know, they, they would sort of have the rebuttal in the same sentence. Um, but it's, you know, the, there's also uh, the question of at what point do you cut somebody's mic off? Um, at what point do you stop giving them that bullhorn? And I don't think the news media worked that out with Trump. I don't, I don't think that they, that they uh, set appropriate limits with him. And I don't know that the news media can either because you have different factions, like some, some of whom are happy to you know, broadcast whatever he said. Adam certainly knows, and you, know, you might as well. I'm normally a very staunch civil libertarian, but I have absolutely no problem with Trump being barred from Twitter. And I, I would refer people who do to um, Justice Holmes, who in his, you know, famously wrote that, you know, free speech does, does not allow you to, you know, shout fire in a crowded theater. And Trump did worse. Um, I don't really know how to answer your question, Adam. I guess all we can do is tell the truth as we see it best try to maintain a civil tone, and all of us need to try to um, extend our imagination so we can at least understand what's motivating the other side. 
Now, by the way, I'm not including the insurgent mob that took over and sacked the Capitol uh, in that. That's the first step to a form of um, civil war. And when you're facing a civil war, you pick sides. But to other conservatives and to other Republicans, I think it is important to try to extend ourselves. But let's look on the left, too. Um, and by the way, this is a right-wing problem. But a problem in embryo exists on the left. You know, last night in Boston and in Portland and Seattle, um, there were, you know, smallish demonstrations. Um, you know, but uh, among the banners that were um, being flown were, we are ungovernable. Um, and I think it was Portland, federal officials opened fire, you know, with crowd dispersal projectiles when the crowd of 150 or 200 people tried to attack the, the Portland ICE office. By the way, memo the Fox News, this was now Biden's federal police shooting on leftist demonstrators. <laughs> so when it came to the first test of violence from the left, the Biden administration, whether it was conscious or unconscious, certainly performed just fine. But um, does that all make sense? Well, that's that's definitely that's definitely a development I think worth mentioning. My guess is we'll have, you know, some listeners will say, wait a minute, that that wasn't on the left. Those were anarchists. They're not easily classified. But I think your point holds. Um, I think of them as sort of the, the far extreme left too. Uh, a friend of mine from they're high school. Self, they're self-radicalizing terrorists. If they were Muslims, we would be calling them self-radicalizing terrorists. I don't. I don't know that I would compare the the uh, the demonstrators in Portland, Antifa, what have you, to what happened in Washington D.C. I don't know that you were trying to do that, Peter, but but um, what happened in Washington D.C. was just a whole different order of magnitude. It wasn't like people simply expressing anger. I mean, you know, there's. I don't think there's been a time when the left has come with zip ties and and firepower, you know, rifles, etc., pipe bombs. I, I think the 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 threat from the right is far more serious than anything we're facing from democratic socialists or or anybody on the left. Well, I I, I do think at the moment the, the 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 greater threat is from the right, but I don't think we should pick and choose. I think that the um, the police in Portland last night were right to fire on the smaller group, um, but I would agree at the moment. The threat is from the right. Let me ask you in closing, if you got a call from the Biden administration tomorrow, and I know we don't usually give advice in our business to the politicians we cover, but if you got a call saying, for the good of the country, what is the best thing we could do in you know, the first three months uh, to, to get this country as one unit back to a better place, what would your answer be? I'm going to cheat a little bit, and I'm going to say, obviously, the first order of business is squaring away the COVID vaccines. Um, other than that, in addition to that, I would say something like 
propose an infrastructure program, something that provides jobs for people all across the United States, um, uh, something that transcends um, narrow partisan boundaries. Yeah, I'll second what Peter said, that, that um, economic instability is um, well, stokes all the other fires that are, that are helping like, tear this country apart, that um, tackling COVID helps uh, you know, get the country on its feet, and infrastructure is, is critically important. Um, and I, I, I would go a little a step further to the left and say the you know some of the, you know the ideas in the Green New Deal, um, the, the promise of job creation and sustainability, um, you know are a good place to start. And I think that you know we've seen some encouraging signs on that from uh, the Biden administration. So um, yeah, yeah. So second, I'm seconding what Peter says. I'll, I'll, I I um I defer to his wisdom. And by the way, I think. Um, you raise a very good point here. Infrastructure can be interpreted creatively. Um, for political reasons, you shouldn't be calling it the Green New Deal. But by all means, infrastructure also means solar power, wind power, as well as highways and subways and trolley cars. Um, the key thing here is jobs. That's a really good idea that both of you floated. Um, Peter, your point about that transcending ideology seems crucial. And it's just such a, a symbolic approach, too, right? After a time of destructiveness, we are building again. Um, I, I, having heard you two talk about it, I hope it happens. We'll make it the achromatic New Deal. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, another installment of the Scrum has come to a close. Yahoo Miller, Peter Kadzis. Thank you for kicking around these weighty questions. Thanks, Adam. Great convo, Adam. Yeah, good to see you again. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to the Scrum, rate us if you haven't, and talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews with one T. And Peter and Yahoo, your Twitter handles are? At Yahoo Miller. At Kadzis, capital K A D Z I S. We will talk to you again soon. The Scrum is a production of GBH News. <laughs>